Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. It's Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and today we're going to take you to the Socialist Party launch that happened last Saturday, uh, which was... uh, over 450 people crowded the uh, Grey uh, Starling Hotel down in Smith Street. So many people were there that, uh, in fact, the people who were speaking had to give their speeches twice. So there was obviously a resounding enthusiasm for the concept of uh, Socialist Party uh, standing uh, candidates for the one of the seats in the Legislative Council for the Victorian election coming up in November. Uh, before we move on to some of the stories that we're going to cover today, later on we're going to talk about uh, the Public Housing Coalition and we're going to follow that with a bit of stuff from Humphrey McQueen who came down to Melbourne the day before the big march to uh, talk about uh, what Marx might have to say about robots and robots coming for your job. <laughs> uh, but um, before we do, I might let you know, and you may already know, that uh, uh, in that uh, last report they were talking about John Setker and Sean Reardon being in court. Well, it's been thrown out of court. There was uh, uh, no um, charges to be faced. Uh, so all the hoopla that went around that uh, rather disgraceful attack on two uh Union officials, uh, very public uh, police arrests on a Sunday in front of their families, etc., etc. Uh, real uh, high art theatre going on there, anti-union theatre going on there, and it was thrown out of court. So that's a bit of a victory. Before we continue, I'll remind you about something that's uh, going to happen later today. The seriously funny Rod Quantock will be at Steps Gallery in Carlton to open a fundraising art show at 3pm on Saturday, May 19th. Works by Arthur Boyd, Lunig, First Dog on the Moon and many, many more will be on sale. There'll be political cartoons from the present and posters from the past, as well as artworks of beauty, joy and wit. All proceeds will support ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, and winner of last year's Nobel Peace Prize and ICANN's parent organisation, MAPWA. Health professionals promoting peace. All welcome. ICANN and MAPWA are 3CR supporters.
Yeah, well, let's go down to uh, what happened last Saturday. Uh, we'll start off with uh, the speech given by by uh, Steve Jolly, who's the uh, number one candidate. Now, you'll probably be aware that uh, one of the groundbreaking elements to the uh, push to get a socialist candidate into the legislative uh, assembly is that uh, there's an uh, there's been an amalgamation uh, or a working together of. Uh, uh, three of the main socialist groupings in uh, Victoria. You've got the Socialist Party, you've got the Socialist Alliance, you've got the Socialist Alternative. They've all come together to work on this particular campaign. So we're going to hear from the three uh, people who are on the ticket. The first one is uh, Steve Jolly, followed by Sue Bolton, followed by Colleen Bolger. So let's kick it off with Steve Jolly. Speaking of United in this way together, I'm not going to give him any introduction because I'm pretty sure that everybody in Speaking of United in this way together... Oh, something wrong with that. Let's go to uh, Sue, see if that's okay, and I'll go and check what's going wrong with that. Could you please welcome Sue Bolton! <laughs> the official unemployment rate in Broadmeadows is 25.4%. Nationally, they talk about a 5.5% figure of unemployment. So if the official figures are 25.4%, imagine what the real figures are. Because we know the official figures underplay the results. And imagine what youth unemployment is like. And then imagine what it's like if you've got the name Muhammad or a African sounding name and you face that discrimination or you're an old worker nudging retirement or you're a young worker who doesn't have any job experience just imagine what you're going to face in terms of unemployment that's a national scandal you'd think that figure would be on the front page of every paper and you'd think there'd be an emergency plan by the government state, federal, local council to do something about it. Instead, there are other big companies planning to shut down and sack lots of people, like the, like the Woolies Warehouse in, in Broadie. Um, you know, they want to put another 600 people out of work, shift to the other side of the city and have a totally roboticised work, workforce. Shame. Shame. And we believe the real reason is because the union is well organised there, the National Union of Workers. So that will add, so it's not just those workers, but all the families and everyone who depends on them. So that is a national disgrace. And that's one of the reasons why we are taking up the issue of jobs very seriously in Victorian Socialists. Because there are jobs that need to be done. In fact, there's that big Ford factory out there, which isn't really forced to close down because they've got hundreds of millions of dollars of our money yeah. in that in that factory. Right. It's not theirs to close. You could have manufacturing in that factory of train train carriages or trams or buses or whatever. And it could even be government manufacturing. Because when you have an emergency, you can have government manufacturing. It doesn't always have to be done by private enterprise. Yeah. And in fact Ford was taken over by, by the um, state or federal government, I can't remember which, during the Second World War, but that was to build tanks. We don't want tanks, we want something useful. Um, 
But there's also lots of other jobs that could be created, re real jobs, rather than the Mickey Mouse things the government does. Because all the governments are doing to, to so-called relieve the jobs crisis is a little bit, a few training schemes, throw people into a few training schemes like aged care um, certificates, and then people come out and there's no job but they're sent to do volunteer work for private old age companies. Um, so, that, so that's not creating jobs. They give a few incentives to a few bosses to employ someone who then they employ them for a few months and then they sack them and employ someone else on a wage subsidy scheme. We want actual real jobs, not bullshit jobs and not being forced to do your resume for the millionth time for the job agency. Yeah. We want yeah. real jobs, which could be building train tracks. It could be actually staffing our stations again. It could be expansion of transport, expansion of the health system. There's so many jobs that could be created. Um, there's no mutual obligation on the bosses. And in fact, Woolworths should be penalised if they try to shut down their warehouse. Yeah. Yeah. Then on housing, Steve's already talked about a lot, but there was a figure today in the paper, six out of ten rental properties are negatively geared. Yeah. They're investment properties, yeah. which means that housing isn't being treated as a human right. It's being treated as a commodity, as an investment. And that's why our rents are going sky high. That's why the cost of housing is going sky high with developers in their land banking and trying to push up, jack up the cost of housing. So people can't compete with developers and investors. Housing should be a human right, and that's why Victorian Socialists are saying it's totally realistic to build 50,000 public housing units over a couple of years. And that also creates jobs it gives people houses to live in, and it also lowers the cost of housing. Yeah. It's a human right. The $40 million the government wants to spend on luxury parliament house offices in their gardens could easily be, um, that's one of the things, there's lots of other things they're doing. Another feature of the Victorian Socialists is we say the market has failed. It's failed with housing people. It's failed at dealing with climate change. It's failed with providing public transport. It's failed with dealing with recycling. Who knew that we were sh shipping all our China. waste to China? Disgusting. Yeah, Who knew that before the recent scandal? These are all things that we need and we need to be brought back into public ownership. We've currently got a system in Victoria where a thousand people a week are being chopped off electricity and another 30,000 or so people are in hardship repayment plans. Electricity is also a basic right. There should be a capping of electricity for people on low income for the cost of electricity. Shopping around doesn't do anything. All it means you go from one bad deal to the next bad deal. That doesn't solve the issue when we've got low incomes and rapidly escalating cost of living. Labor takes the outer northern suburbs totally for granted because it is these are safe labor seats and it's also taking working class communities to, for granted. The massive Coolaroo recycling fire last year forced the evacuation of hundreds of people in Dallas. 
Now that fire was no accident. That company knew that there was a fire risk. They'd had small fires there before. The union had complained, the residents had complained. The Environmental Unprotection Agency refused to do anything about it. And then we had that massive fire. Did they give a shit about people in Broadmeadows and Dallas and the surrounding suburbs and the health problems they're gonna suffer? No, they didn't. They allowed that that fire was a result of the company trying to manipulate the market, stockpiling and then causing a fire risk. And then on top of that, what they've done, another fire risk in, in the outer northern suburbs is the big tire stockpile that was installed that was a fire risk of millions of tires. They've tra- instead of solving the issue, they've tracked them to Melbourne and dumped them in Somerton somewhere. And in fact, that sounds like a good place to have a protest, I think. <laughs> um, the state Labor government says it's a progressive government. This is not true. They've thrown a few stops out, like they gave um, you know, some endorsement to the Equal Marriage Campaign and a few stops here and there, but it is just another capitalist government. It's pushing a, a, a real attacks on our civil liberties with its law and order agenda. It's pushing a racist agenda, and especially how they used the cops against the Flemington public housing community last year. It's also used anti-union laws against the public transport workers when they took strike action. And it's privatising everything that Canada and previous Liberal governments forgot to privatise. So it privatised the Port of Melbourne. It's privatised disability services. And now it's trying to dismantle and privatise 11 to 12 public housing estates across Melbourne. So that is by selling off public land. selling off public housing, but it's also ripping communities apart because these are real thriving collective communities. They're not dysfunctional, they're real thriving communities where people trust each other to look after their kids and so forth. So just ending up, and in addition to that, they're selling off the old, old school site. So there are little struggles all over the place in the northern suburbs, but also other places. They've been selling off the old school sites that Kenneth and other governments shut down. They're trying to sell off open space along the creek. And they tried to sell off the land from the old Aboriginal school, Ballot Maroot. But we, we seem to have almost saved that site. But what can a socialist do in parliament if they're an individual? I think Steve has explained that because our approach is very different from the other mainstream parties. Because the other mainstream parties, they go into parliament, they negotiate with each other, they do a bit of media, etc. But that's all they do. They don't use the real force of social change to win victory. The real force of social change is outside of parliament. And if you look at all of the campaigns that Steve and I've been involved with and all of the, the socialist groups, Socialist Alternative, Socialist Alliance and the others who've been here tonight, we've all experienced social struggles outside of Parliament which have changed politics, including the Equal Marriage Campaign. 
the role of a parliamentarian, a social parliamentarian, is to build those struggles, be the voice of them, help develop struggles where people aren't confident to build struggles. That's where we can have a difference. We can change the course of things. That's where social parliamentarians can actually change the course of history. So there is a lot that a, a socialist can do in parliament. And there's a lot of groups here tonight so together, we can actually really challenge for our rights. We can challenge a lot of the regressive right-wing reactionary policies of big business and, and the government. Uh, we've got a lot of strength in this room, a lot of experiences. Uh, people from all sorts of corners of Melbourne have come together. And what we want to do is we want to put people in charge of their own destiny because that is a socialist approach. So yes, we want to get a socialist in parliament, but we also want to build the struggles outside of parliament. The two things go together and one thing can re reinforce the other. So, you know, we, we can actually start to change the course of capitalist politics in this country that is pushing us down. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're down at the uh, Grace Darling Hotel last Saturday where the socialists launched their campaign to get elected a a person elected to the upper house in the Victorian election that's coming in November. Uh, And I uh, was going to start off with uh, Steve Jolly, who's uh, at the top of the ticket, bit of technical difficulty, but it's all been resolved. And so we'll hear what uh, Steve Jolly kicked off with. Here we go. No, still got some problems. All right. They really don't want to hear Steve Jolly. So we'll go on to Colin Bolger. Colleen Bolger is the third person on the ticket. She's a member of Socialist Alternative. So we'll hear what she's got to say. Colleen Bolger is a lawyer uh, and a colleague of mine. She works and represents people who uh, suffer from asbestos-related diseases. She's also an ASU delegate, and I can tell you, working with her, she's articulate, and we all look after her. Um, she's a wonderful person, and I'm really honoured to welcome on the stage. Colleen Bolger! We have had so much momentum with this campaign since we announced this project in February. But tonight, when I look around this room, that's when I think we can win this. That is, if every person that's come out tonight to support us goes away this evening knowing that they're going to commit some time between now and November. If you join us, we can win this. We know that our opponents are building a wall chest right now to face us down. Millions of dollars will flow into the major parties through corporate donations. Yeah. They'll be having their dinners where business executives pay $10,000 to sit at a table with the candidate, be in their ear. That's how political influence happens, behind closed doors with lots and lots of money. And it's repugnant. Yeah. Yeah. We'll never match their resources, but what we can build is a people-powered campaign. That is, we've got two things, and the two things the left has always had. It's ideas and people. Social movements, our struggles stand and fall on those two things. Ideas, we've got ideas, but we need people. You've heard a lot about what we stand for tonight. And it's not a list of promises 
about we'll build a school here but not over there a train station here but no new trains that's what most people think of politics betting about and that's what the major parties push that the first role of government is to secure profit and that governing means doling out the rest whatever's left over if you heard anthony albanese uh and some question about people on Newstart. People who subsist on $248 a week, well below the poverty line. What did the champion of the left of the Labor Party have to say to that? He said nothing. He said we have to prioritise. Well, we know what their priorities are. Profits come first and the rest of us can get back in line. And the poorer you are, the further back you are. A lot of us are here tonight because we have long talked about the need to build a left alternative to Labor and the Greens. It's an indictment of the Labor Party that we're told here in Victoria we're lucky because we've got the most progressive Labor Premier in the country, the most progressive Labor leader, state or federal, in many years. But I'll tell you what. There's nothing progressive about taking a selfie of yourself with a refugee at the zoo one week and the very next turn around and take away the rights, the human rights of children so that you can lock them up in adult jail. Shame. There's nothing progressive about expecting us to celebrate when Andrews announces that he's building only half of the schools that we will need in our suburbs to keep up with population growth. But they're spending double the entirety of the budget for building new schools on building just one more prison. And a new coat of paint at Trades Hall is not going to beautify what Daniel Andrews has done to the families of people with intellectual disabilities that live in supported care. Those families, he said before the election, that their homes would never be run by private operators. And not six weeks later, after the election, he did exactly that. Tender out the contracts to private operators. Leaving Liar. those families high and dry, the subject of corporations making a profit of some of the most vulnerable people in our community. And there's certainly nothing progressive about arming the thugs in Victoria Police with new and more dangerous weapons. Shame. On paper, the Greens present as much better than that, at least. But in practice, they've been chasing the mainstream for years. This is a time when people want to see political parties buck the system, and yet the Greens are obsessed with finding a bigger part to run the system. That will never inspire people and never again will the Greens be organising the grassroots campaigns that we need to fight for a better world. Socialist ideas are not new. Last week we celebrated the 200th anniversary of the birth of Mark, so there's nothing newfangled about our theory. But at its heart, socialist politics puts the working class at the centre and champions the oppressed. And we don't hide it, and we don't shut up when something controversial needs to be said, and we don't run away from a fight, because it's a fight that we need to take away the wealth and distribute it 
to our communities to fight for a better world. Yeah. Yeah. Fighting words. That was uh, Colleen Bolger, who is on the third uh, name on the socialist ticket to get someone into the uh, upper house of the uh, social, uh, Victorian Parliament in the November election. And finally, maybe we'll get to hear. This is suspense. We'll, we'll finally hear Steve Jolly. Speaking of United in this fight together, I'm not going to give him any introduction because I'm pretty sure that everybody in this room personally knows Steve Jolly because he has helped them in some way. That is the kind of man that he is. Without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Steve Jolly! Thanks, comrades. Thanks, Corinne. Like Corinne, I want to acknowledge the Wurundjeri com- uh, 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 community as the traditional owners of this area, but also want to acknowledge that we're here on Smith Street which is also the home of indigenous people in the inner north. Sometimes in politics, it's great to have wins, but sometimes you can be proud of a defeat. 10 years ago, me and one Green stood against the majority of the Greens and the ALP and lost a vote in the city of Yarra to bring in local law eight to witch hunt indigenous people off Smith Street. 10 years later, the indigenous community are still here on Smith Street and you can stick the local law eight where the sun doesn't shine because they not only are here, but they're thriving in this community. Now, when you talk to people about the Victorian Socialists, the two words they use, most people say to me is, it's about time. It's about time the left got their act together. It's about time the left united. But more importantly, it's about time we had a serious political opposition to the one-sided class war that we faced over the last 20, 30, 40 years of neoliberalism, privatization, user pays, deregulation, cuts to services, and the winding back of the gains that our ancestors won in the post-war period, that is the agenda of the neoliberals and the political parties that they represent. We stand against that. The ability, the lack of a political voice so far for working class people in this country is allowed to 1% or more precisely, the 0.1% yeah, to yeah. scapegoat migrants and to scapegoat is particularly refugees. Yeah. We have a refugee policy in Australia that Donald Trump would love to have if you could get away with it. He hasn't been able to get away with it even in America <laughs> at this present moment in time. The Victorian socialists is fundamentally about building a political, a left-wing, a socialist, a progressive political alternative to the major parties who support neoliberalism on housing. Instead of building private uh, micro-apartments for rich people and investors, houses for families, for poor people, for young people, so that we can have people not couch surfing, not living on the streets, not in rental stress, but housing as a basic human right. And our policies of rent control, of inclusionary zoning, of ensuring that councils build uh, public housing and social housing is the way forward on the housing sector. On transport to ensure that we have in every suburb of Melbourne 10 minutes to a train, to a tram and to a bus and not building suburbs where people, if they're lucky, have got access to a bus once an hour. On workers' rights, we hear a lot about law and order when they talk about so-called apex gangs. What about some law and order and those bosses who don't pay the basic minimum legal rights to their workers? On planning, 
What a misnomer. There is no planning in Victoria. You walk in as a developer to Richmond Town Hall or any other town hall with an application and you just get it ticked off. There is no matrix to say that if the population goes up, we need more parks, we need more schools, we need more kindergartens. There is absolutely no planning taking place. And that is why we stand with people, especially in places like Yarra and Moreland, who have fought against greedy developers yeah. who are putting yeah. their own interests and their shareholders' interests ahead of ordinary people. Yeah. 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 We, we have got the right to now establish Victorian socialists. Yeah. Because we yeah. have done the hard jobs. It's been the left who have been the backbone of the same-sex marriage debate. It's yeah. been the left yeah. who have been the backbone of the Solidarity with Refugees in Australia campaign. Yeah. It has been the left who have been the backbone of the fight against the far right and the neo-Nazis. Yeah. 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 Here in Yarra, it's been socialists, not just me, but socialists, many of them, who have been the backbone of the fight two or three years ago to stop the East-West Tunnel. Yeah. It's been socialists who stopped with the community the bin tax here in Yarra yeah. last year. It's been socialists who have stood as Hytran said, almost alone at times with public housing tenants in their fight against privatisation and against really eviction from the inner city if the government had their way. And it's been the socialists who have stood with developers, stood with residents against developers who try to bring in private units for the rich and not build communities, which is what we want. So therefore we say to you, we ask you to support the Victorian socialists, not as an act of faith, but on the basis of, of our record, 14 years in Yarra Council, six years on Moreland Council, and decades of struggle by the component organisations that make up, and the individuals that make up the Victorian Socialists. We seek nothing less than to create a political alternative to break the political monopoly that the Labour Party have over progressive working class and middle class people. If we don't do that, we cannot see fundamental change in Australia. To those people who we have not yet convinced and who are still thinking of voting for the Labour Party and for the Greens, we say, what better way to get value for your money, to get value for your vote, than having a socialist in council in, in Parliament with their foot on the neck of the Greens and the Labour Party? <laughs> <laughs>
If we can do that at a local level, if we can do that at a state level, can you imagine the opportunities? At the steely spine of this campaign, and we make no apologies about this, are a group of young socialists, revolutionaries, who have turned this campaign in the last two months into a campaign that the Labour Party and the Greens are shitting themselves on. Let me let you tell you a little secret. No social changes happen anywhere in the world. The Gaza, West Bank, in America, in South Africa, without young socialist revolutionaries leading it. And we are proud of the fact that our spine is those young socialists that would have met you at the door here, that are the backbone of this campaign, and I want you to give them the biggest round of applause. challenges. One is organisational. When you run in a council election, you probably have to staff eight polling booths. When you run in a lower house state seat, you probably got to staff about 20 polling booths. On November the 24th, in the two weeks before that, we've got to staff not two like here at, in the Richmond seat, but 22 pre-polling booths. On the election day, we have to staff 170 polling booths. It's a huge task. And that is why we are so happy and proud and honoured and humbled by the magnificent donations to this campaign from the firefighters, from the HSUA division of Craig, but in particular of the $50,000 last week from the Electrical Trades Union, the most militant union. But it's not enough. We need $200,000. On election day, we need to print half a million leaflets for half a million voters. We need one and a half thousand core flutes. So we need you to buy the raffle tickets. We need you to give donations. And there are people in this room that are dirt poor. And I would say to them, if you can give a $5,000 donation or a $1,000 donation, I'm not gonna out you here, because if you're rich, you don't come to a socialist function and say that. So take the pledge form, take the pledge form and give us that donation because we really need it. But the more serious challenge we have is political. Because as you go deeper into the north of this seat, north of Belt Street, out to Brody, up to uh, South Moran and so on, because of the low level of political struggle in Australia and the low level of socialist consciousness, a lot of people who are really bitter about the impacts of neoliberalism on their lives don't really know about socialism. They definitely don't know about Colin or Sue or me or Victorian socialists. And it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be harder than it is in the inner city where we're relatively well known. We have to be concrete. We have to listen. We have to find out the issues and the campaigns locally that they're involved in. Sometimes it's on transport issues, public transport issues like in South Morang, unemployment in Brody, Islamophobia also there. Loads of local issues we have to be involved in, the airport issue and so on and so forth. This is the type of challenge that we're going to face over the course of the next period. The other thing, of course, is that we have to say to the community in the north, you live politically speaking in a one-party state. The Labour Party run the councils. The Labour Party run the state. The Re Labour Party own the federal seats. And you're in this horrible predicament or plight where because of that, the Liberals don't care about you and Labour take you for granted. Now, it wasn't very long ago that Collingwood and Fitzroy and Richmond were one-party states for the Labour Party. We have changed that. And that is why the Labour Party, you can't pick up the age almost any day when they're distributing largesse 
because it's a marginal seat here and many other places in the inner city. Well, let us tell the Labour Party, we're going to be making a marginal seat in the northern suburbs. We're going to take on your political hegemony over the course of the next period and ensure that the workers up there who have stood loyal for you for 100 years are not going to be shafted anymore by the Labour Party, but we're going to bring you to the table and we're going to get results for the working class of the northern suburbs. The last point I want to make is that socialism and the Victorian socialists, as Corinne said earlier on, it is about people. We stand with the public housing tenants who have to deal with an office of housing, who are super efficient if you're two days late with your rent, but much less efficient when the lifts break down, much less efficient when they ask for sports facilities for their kids much less efficient when it comes to fixing the laundries on each floor. This is the reality for public housing tenants, living sometimes in cockroach-infested uh, 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 units despite paying the rent. People who, when they go for jobs, have to lie about where they live because of the prejudice they get for being public housing tenants. Kids who walk out of school and have got nowhere to go, so they hang out every afternoon from Monday to Friday at Fitzroy Library, at North, at, at North Fitzroy Library, because there's a sense of community. Those people who are forgotten are not forgotten by us. We stand in solidarity with public housing tenants. And that is why, that is why the campaign to stop the demolishing of the walk-ups by this Labour government and their handing over to developers and social housing and private units, we will fight. Because it's not just for public housing tenants. When you've got 40,000 public housing tenants on the waiting list, that increases rents for every young person in this room who's going to the private rental market. And that's what we say with public housing tenants. We will be asking Trades Hall to put work bans on the demolishment of those units. We will not let that happen. And if that doesn't work, we will do what we did four years ago. And we will set up community pickets. And we will physically link arms and we will stop the demolition of those public housing units and there's a guaranteed return of better public housing for the shit public housing that's there at the present moment in time. We also stand with those young people, many of you are here tonight can relate to this, who have done all the right things in life. You go to school, you do your VCE, you get a degree, and what happens? You look around and you're trapped in a hospital job, in casual casual job, with no job security getting paid poverty wages and saying to yourself, is this the best capitalism has to offer? We stand in solidarity with those people. They're our people. We are fighting for wage justice for you and for all working Australians. We stand with working class families who every week face a tsunami of bills, asking themselves the question, we work, both of us work, our eldest kids work. What do we have to do to get ahead? They see the bills on the fridge, and they're going backwards at a time when we're supposed to be in a boom. Because this is a boom for the rich, it's not a boom for the poor. We understand you because we are you. The Victorian Socialist is your political home. The Victorian Socialist is your political hope. Join us. Become an ambassador for this campaign. And over the next 196 days, help us make the long overdue political breakthrough that we've been waiting for for such a long time and take socialism in Australia to the next level. And as our banner said on Wednesday at the rally, if you don't fight, you lose. Thank you very much.
I'm in London still. I'm in London still. I'm in London. Still. Hi, this is Vicky from the Waves. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Please support Community Radio. Yes, do support Community Radio. You're on 3CR. Our Radiothon's coming up on the 4th to the 17th of June, so uh, we would love it if you supported our uh, Fight for Your Mic. Uh, we've just been listening to the uh, launch of the socialist uh, uh, assault on the upper house of uh, Victoria in the November elections. They've got a volunteer training day tomorrow at 2pm at Victoria Trades Hall if you want to be a leafleter, a person who stands at the uh, polling booth. Or, uh, and uh, as they say, uh, anybody who uh, turns up to to help out, will uh, don't have to do anything that they feel um, uh, unprepared to do, but uh, that uh, they will be put with someone who's a bit more experienced. So it's a big, uh, big push is on. Uh, so volunteer training, two pm, Victoria Trades Hall. Uh, on the line, we've got uh, Marceline, and she's from the uh, Public Housing Co- Coalition. Uh, g'day, Marceline. How are you? Hello, Annie. Good, thank you. Yeah, now... Uh, I, I, I'm with the Public Housing Defence Network. Oh, the Public Housing Defence Network. Sorry. I, I, the, but but actually, everybody's fighting for the same thing, aren't they, in a sense? So I, yeah, and I met you down at the Ascot Vale uh, uh, walk-ups, which are being earmarked for uh, demolition as part of this uh, so-called public housing renewal. Uh, do you want to talk to uh, why it's such a disgrace that, uh, in fact, it's not about public housing renewal? Yes, it is. It isn't at all because uh, it's simply not about fixing up whatever is run down, whatever needs painting or restructure work or whatever, or making the place comfortable for residents uh, and tenants. It's actually what it is about is um, of a, a, a lie, that the whole title is a lie, or the slogan is a lie. What they're doing is actually selling off um, a percentage, a large percentage of the land uh, that uh, people who have, you know, Australians, um, I'm a migrant, so people before my time, actually that your, your parents and grandparents, their taxpayers bought that land for for people to live in and vulnerable people to live in. So land's being sold off basically to developers and, um, and, and a little bit of it's left for tenants, residents. But what's happening is they're changing the number of bedrooms uh, in, in some of them. For example, in, um, in Walker Street, there are now currently um, 52 um, two to three-bedroom places, but it's coming down to five. When they do the so-called renewal program, they're reducing the number to f- to five. So you tell me how many families who currently live there can actually even go back to living there. It's interesting, isn't so, it, Marceline? Because um, you've actually got lived experience of uh, the uh, uh, extraordinary uh, usefulness of having stable uh, housing in in this respect. Yes, I, I, I'm a migrant, and in the seventies. We were lucky to get public housing in Ascotvale, my, my family, five children and my parents. And I tell you what, you know, that gave us stability. Um, that's the key to all of this, you see. Once you have stability, 
in uh, with shelter and you have um, go- a good health program in the country, um, then you you can people can grow up. You know, pe- families can have allow their children, like we did, grow up to be healthy and um, complete their education and give people a chance to actually even move out of public housing. So I'm not dependent on public housing anymore. Um, and so it's, it's great that I've had that chance, and many people have had that chance in the past. I've met many people at these rallies who've also grown up with public housing. But people need that option. We can't just walk away from it and sell it off to private developers. There's this, uh, imp- there's this uh, implication that uh, public housing uh, people, uh, you know, like it's not a community it's not something that uh, is uh, vital. In fact, it's really just a um, stopgap, uh, um, a welfare trap. But in actual fact, it's not that, is it? No, it's not at all. It's not. Um, we've met people door knocking around different estates. We've met people um, who are, you know, Australians, not necessarily migrants, um, you know, other kind of Australians, I mean, who've lived here for all their lives um, and their ancestors as well. But because of whatever's happened, they've needed, they've depended on this. And for some people, it's a stopgap measure. For some people, it's a lifelong thing. Um, and it, it's necessary. It's necessary not to kick people out and increase homelessness. See, that's the other thing. On the other hand, we've got this homelessness problem as well. And people are in authority, positions of authority are reacting to, you know, people in the streets, the city, and finding it all so disgusting and whatever. Well, what do they expect people to do? This is the problem. We can't we can't walk away from our, our shared responsibility of providing support for people who are vulnerable in it, different stages of it, their lives. It, it's also very interesting that uh, the nine places that have been earmarked are walk-ups, and they're all placed in really quite salubrious suburbs now. Ah, that's the key. You've hit the nail on the head, I think, Annie, because. They're all in, uh, so, you know, kind of inner city Mel- ring of Melbourne, Ascot Vale, Northcote, Brunswick. Um, where, where else? The, the other one is in. Um, oh, uh, there's. Hawthorne. Qu- yeah. Hawthorne. Yeah? Yeah, Hawthorne. Um, even, yeah. Even, um, but now they're even extending it even to Hampton and other places, you know, just continuing and continuing. It's, it's, uh, it's all about the price of land and what developers uh, would enjoy. Even Clifton Hill is one of these um, areas. Um, and we just, you know, it's not fair to make people who live in these, in, these, um, in these places, making them fight for what should be their right. And that's why I think all of us, even people who, um, you know, any, anyone who's listening who has any kind of uh, empathy for the vulnerable in society and our obligation to work together to support each other. I mean, that's what our, tax, our taxes should be doing, not, not uh, buying ammunition and not, you know, supporting the politicians in their great careers. The, um, uh, the, I know that uh, you're not fully involved in uh, what's going to go on down at Walker Street, but there's a particular event that's coming up on Saturday the 26th at noon, I think it is, down at... Uh, uh, Walker Street, which is um, uh, in Northcote. Now, that's a, a yeah. b- beautiful little place. Uh, you go along that uh, tram line as it goes, starts going along uh, 
High Street, and it's just this little uh, nook right near the river, very quiet, very pleasing. Uh, you can see why it would be attractive to private developers. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, North, Northcott has become quite a trendy place to live. Uh, it's become, you know, it, it's, um, it's, it's kind of this, the reputation of that suburb changed considerably over the last what, couple of decades. And, of course, developers want to get their grubby hands in that area. Um, well, and that's, the government's acting yeah. as if uh, this renewal plan is the only option, this private-public uh, uh, partnership arrangement is the only option and that, in actual fact, it's going to alleviate homelessness. But that's really... it doesn't. The figures don't add up, do they? Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd like to tell you why um, I, we are against this idea of com- this uh, social housing business. See, they're using all this euphemism which simply should be called public housing like it always was. But the definition and the language is all changing because the problem will be that when they put in these other uh, groups, so organizations, institutions, to run these places, what what will happen is, uh, and it's already proven to happen, for example, the the places in, in Carlton, what they sold off there, that uh, each of these places will have their own criteria. They'll have their own different waiting lists. So they can pick and choose who lives in these places. And there's nothing public and transparent about this process. Whereas the public housing program, the way it is now, there is something reasonable about it. You know, there is a waiting list. Uh, We know what's going on. We know what the criteria is. It's the same for everyone who applies. But we are worried about what will happen if this becomes social housing and um, government dumping the responsibility onto different organizations and washing their hands of everything. Um, so we, it should just stay in public hands, and it's true. in fact, what the government should be doing is increasing it very bluntly. Anyone with common sense who moves around the city knows that that's what should happen, not selling it. Thanks for talking to yeah. me today, Marcelina. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Annie. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So get down to uh, Walker Street on the 26th, 12, 12 noon. Uh, it's uh, part of uh, supporting uh, that community and also some, uh, supporting public housing in general. This this conversation really needs to be uh, broadened and uh, the uh, pe- people who think that it's all nice and tidy and it's all okay and the government's got control and it's all okay, public uh, selling off public assets really have to stop and governments have to actually take responsibility for what governments are actually there for. It's, uh, uh, well, it's outrageous. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when first a brief deviation from normal week that was. Satire, sadly, can't apply to the events in Jerusalem and on the Gaza border as the displaced are slaughtered for highlighting their displacement. Trump's timing clearly designed to rub salt into the wounds of the displaced, to depict those who stole their land as the heroes, but then his life has been based on theft and thus the events and the massacre are not the stuff of satire, of humour, but also cannot be ignored. 
After last week's week that was, a listener um, claimed calling occupied Palestine Zion was anti-Semitic and normally I'd ignore such nonsense, but with the events this week, a brief response. I've called it Zion for the 30 plus years the week that was has been on air and I'm sure our astute listeners will know for the very purpose of making it clear we are not anti-Semitic but clearly anti-Zionist. Whether those people be Jewish or non-Jews like all our Prime Ministers, Hawke and uh, Hawke and Gillard, clear examples, all US presidents including the current incumbent and all other non-Jewish supporters of Zionism. Of course, people like the caller have hijacked the term anti-Semitic, given that supporting the displaced landless Palestinians is pro-Semitic. Not meant as satire, but if we are to believe Trump's UN ambassador Nikki Haley, Iranians must have infiltrated Zion, stolen Zion military uniforms, and fired on the Palestinians because she said Iran was the guilty party. Further, and we could treat this satirically but won't in the circumstances, the US vetoed a Security Council move for a full inquiry while continually denouncing Russia for vetoing US motions on Syria. End of deviation. Back to normal nonsense. A week when the government was popping the corks as the number of successful prosecutions arising out of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Smash the Union's multi-trillion dollar con mission soared to, uh, let's see, soared to, uh, to zero as the magistrate's court proved the law is an ass by confirming the prosecution's withdrawal of charges against two evil, evil union bosses. That pejorative which epitomises evil union boss, confirmed for no more substantive reason than lack of evidence. For goodness sake, the Royal Commission didn't let that worry it. As we mentioned last week, counsel assisting in his, and it was mostly a he, his role as Crown Prosecutor, making daily allegations of evil sensationalised across the media, leading every front page and news report, reported as fact, as real. And if making these allegations without evidence was good enough for the Crown Prosecutor, then how contemptuous of the Royal Commission and its totally unbiased his honour to expect evidence and proof now when the Royal Commission found them guilty the very day the caring business class government established the Commission as its first item of business. Sadly, the media was unable to publish the refutation of all these no-evidence-needed allegations when they were proved non-evidence, but then by that time it was old news and there were critical urgent matters like that week's Fashion Week and who's wearing what and who made it. Well, presumably some Bangladeshi slave who hadn't been killed or injured for life in a workplace accident, the caring employers and the ultra-expensive labels so regret and promise to redress. Promise every time. Sincerely, but seriously, how can anyone who reads or watches the Lord Rupert of Wapping outlets, especially the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, say for one second that John Setka, for instance, is not guilty? Those astute readers and viewers know he is guilty of almost every crime committed in the society. And what a stroke of luck that that media just happened to be outside the homes of these officials at the very time they were enjoying a Sunday afternoon with their families that the... Sorry, the coppers raided them in paramilitary style, brimming with weapons to show how evil these, as it now turns out, non-criminals are and thus could expose their criminality to the world. 
most fortuitous coincidence. Not that the law didn't do all it could to find the evidence, as the prosecution case unraveled due to the caring business class witnesses providing about 10,000 versions of the evidence, the court promised they would be, they, well, one of them anyway, would be exonerated from self-incrimination if only he could get his act together. Look, the prosecution has no intention of taking action over your minor slips of the mind and destroying the evidence we can't find. Uh, our only interest is creating a case against these evil, evil union thugs. Although, given that representing your members is a heinous crime under our no-longer-work-choices-just-looks-like-it laws, surely they could have found something to hit them with. But it is good to see the government proving... OK, they couldn't prove the case, but good to see they don't just concentrate on culling evil unions. Because as they embark on a culling women campaign, the situation was clarified by the wit and wisdom of former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Erica Betts, on the bosses. Haven't we got to wonder how Malcolm could have dropped such talent? Clarified. Sometimes women will win. Eric was all perspicacity. Sometimes men will win. My God, Eric, spot on. Yes, yes, he's right. It's got to be one or the other. We'd, ne we'd never have thought. Thanks for clarifying that, Eric. On which, as election fever mounts, almost impossible to know where the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review will throw its support, with two editorials this week feeding the confusion. Coalition business must expose Labor policy deceits. Hmm, no clue there. Labor, by the way, is what they call the Socialist Party. Then, Labor is ramping up active hostility to business. Again, impossible to see which way they're going, but wish they told us which bit of Socialist Party policy is active hostility to business. If only. Obviously, an evil clandestine socialist plot the capitalist reviewers unearthed that we have missed completely. It highlighted a quote from its own editorial I imagine they considered rhetorical. Can more taxes and the CFMEU do the job of business in running the economy? Forget the tax bit, but the second bit, the CFMEU, the answer would be yes, prompting our rhetorical question, what chance the evil CFMEU or any militant union running the show if the socialists happen to win? By the way, Eric's comments came during an interview in which he was distancing the government by about eight light years from the prosecution of the union non-criminals. Nothing to do with the Royal Commission, all down to the majority of Dan's state government, which in turn distanced itself by about eight light years. We also caught up with the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Duffer, as he was winding up his interview, well, agreeable chat, with the Sydney shock jock who's probing in-depth interrogations he regards as his press commitments. Uh, Pete, these African athletes seeking refugee status, uh, what's the story? These are like, you know, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people who you know like... Oh, sorry to interrupt, but uh, they came by plane. Uh, these are like, you know, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal plane people who you know like have broken the law. Uh, but they're legally seeking asylum. There are no legal, you know, asylum seekers. They are taking advantage, like you know, of our goodness, our hospitality, our, you know, like, humanity. 
And look, I'm sick of these fake news suggestions that I like. Do not treat a legal boat and, uh, and, and, and plane people, you know, properly. Let me assure you, we treat all these, you know, like people equally. We do not discriminate when it comes to, like, you know, illegal si asylum seekers. Uh, thanks, Constable. Thanks, Pete. A pleasure, like. OK, moving on. Oh, sorry. What was that, Pete? Do you want us to be overrun by, you know, like, blacks? There's not a racist bone in my body, but do you, like, want us to be overrun by blacks? But, but Pete, this land was 100% black when we invaded. What invasion? I'm sick of hearing that, you know, word. Civilization landed here on Australia Day, 17-8-whatever, and created the, like, multicultural, you know, everyone's welcome country we enjoy. The blacks were racist. Now we all, you know, get on together, including asylum seekers. They get on together. They have, like, you know, no choice. They're all together. <laughs> See, this show's like they don't want to integrate with, you know, like, us. OK, thanks again, Pete. Pleasure, you know, like. Finally, as the US of the UN of the US of the world can't comprehend how evil North Korea could even be mildly upset about the US of holding train killer exercises on its border to practice invading it, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor security uh, through train killing advisor John Belton promised that if North Korea obeyed every order from the US of saying it would not do to the bloke with the idiot haircut what it did to Gaddafi in Libya. Interesting that, because John must have forgotten the US of has always denied it had anything at all to do with the demise of Gaddafi, and we all believed it, because we always believe everything that Honourable Lot says. So are they all, all honourable men. Oh, perhaps one more finally, the care of caring employers for the lowest of low paid. If the ACTU minimum wage case succeeds, the caring chambers are profits profit, then workers would suffer. Bracket creep would take more of their lowest of low paid wages and so they'd be better off not getting a wage rise. Don't we have to admire their concern for the workers they so care about? Good morning. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on 3CR and uh, coming up next is a... Uh, Humphrey, Humphrey McQueen, he came down from Canberra and he did a speech down at the New International Bookshop. It's part of their uh, series of uh, talks uh, that they have. You should keep your ears and eyes out for their talks because they're uh, very interesting. And uh, this particular one was, of course, by Humphrey McQueen. And uh, it's all about... Robots, which has been a theme that um, I've been following up lately and uh, causing some controversy because some of the uh, arguments are that the robots aren't really coming for your job, but uh, in actual fact, they have come for some. And it was interesting because... Uh, Boston Dynamics, which is an American company, well, actually, it's owned by uh, a Japanese company now. I was looking up uh, where it came from. Uh, it used to be owned by Google, believe it or not. Uh, but uh, they've just put out this rather interesting uh, footage of uh, their latest uh, uh, robots, which are all uh, designed uh, to... Uh, look very uh, human-alike and uh, are able to uh, traverse uh, 
uh, swiftly uh, uneven terrain and uh, do all the things that uh, you'd like robots to do, which is, you know, climb stairs quickly and open doors and all that sort of stuff. But, um, uh, yes, uh, one of their... uh, and this I found really interesting, one of their uh, line items is one called Pet Man, which I think probably says it all. But uh, there's more to this discussion, and uh, Humphrey was able to enlighten us. material I'm going to present is actually based on a chapter I've written for a book about what we can learn from Marx's Volume 1 for our contemporary activities. And that'll be out towards the end of the year. Um, It's called Do Robots Dream of Becoming Time Poor? (laughs) Uh, Some of you will recognise the source of that uh, title. Um, One of the ways in which people have interpreted Marx, I think quite wrongly, and I won't go into this now, is that he's a technological determinist that machinery, changes in the machinery world change everything in the political, the legal, the cultural world, that if you just follow the changes in machinery, then everything changes as well. Now, Marx saw that all of those things were tied up and they all changed, but go back and remember the opening of the Communist Manifesto. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggle. He doesn't say the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of technological development. So that's the important conceptual thing that I think we certainly have to take out of this, is to look at some more immediate practical things as to what's happening around us now. We're told that all the jobs are going to disappear, uh, robots will do everything, Well, the McKinsey report came out late last year with a somewhat different view of what was likely to happen. They thought that about 15% of existing jobs would no longer be there. And that would affect across the world about 800 million people. But as they stressed, this did not mean to say that there would be 800 million more people who didn't have a job. It just meant that the current jobs would not be there, that that 15% of them. But they made a more significant point. They pointed out that today, and for some time past, a third of, uh, one third of the tasks, not the jobs, but the actual operational things that people do, a third of them, by 60% of the workforce, could already be done by a machine. Why haven't they been? Because it's cheaper to have cheap human labour and speed it up than to go to the expense of buying an expensive new new generation machine. And what struck me was illustrative of this was the photograph, the, the made-up photograph that the newspapers used to go with, with this story. They had a robotic machine and then a human hand arm making sashimi. And I thought to myself, this would perhaps be worthwhile economically for the employer if you had a sashimi factory. But who wants to buy fish 
that's three or four days old on your social media. The whole sales point is that it's going to be fresh. So that's really not going to work, is it? Most of the social media, as we know, like, is sold in small outlets. If you've got a robot to do it, and you know, no doubt you could train a robot to do it. That's, that wouldn't be... It, it is not a complicated thing to do. Not as complicated as we'll see in a minute as putting an IKEA chair together. <laughs> the, uh, no, they can't. No, 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 they can't. No, that's the story they put around. They can't. Um, they, if you had a small outlet and you had one machine that was doing this, you'd have to have two machines. Because if it broke down, you wouldn't be able to make any sashimi that day. So you'd have to have that amount of investment dead sitting over there waiting for the moment in which you need to call it into effect. Whereas if the worker calls in sick, you just get body hired to send in somebody else. So you're not going to spend that amount of money just to be able to do this. It's just not going to work in, in that kind of way. Let's go back a bit with IKEA because the whole story is, is very significant. They've externalised the assembly of their furniture so that we add that to the, to the factory. However, in doing it, IKEA lose the value of the labour that their employees would add to it. Now, why do they do this? Because the transport costs of sending an assembled bookcase from Sweden to Australia would make no one would ever be able to afford to buy a piece of IKEA. So they'd make up the parts, put them into a flat pack and transport-wise they send them out here and then we buy them and take them home and struggle to put them together. <laughs> However, they try and regain as much of the value as they can by only selling their products through their own stores. So they try and internalise it back into the thing. Now, this story that's come about, that there's now a robot that can put a chair together. What happened was that after three years of experiment in a lab in Singapore, being hand-guided by three of the scientists involved, two robots took 19 minutes to almost assemble a chair out of 16 parts. Now, why did the robots fail? Well, from the 80s onwards, one of the leading AI experts in the world, a man called Moravec, came up with Moravec's paradox. And Moravec's paradox is, it's easier to te teach a computer to checkmate than to put an IKEA chair together. <laughs> and why is this? Because the opposable thumb. There are just things we can do with our hands, partly because we are human, we are physical bodies operating in a physical world. The computer, the robot, has to be told everything. If I say to you, Trump is in the White House, you don't have to be programmed to know that Trump's right arm is in the White House too. The computer does. You've got to be told that his right small finger is there, the <laughs> fingernail. All the things we take for granted because we are beings in the world. The computer knows none of that. 
But you can teach it to play chess. But you can't teach it as simply and as easily to do all these other things. And this is Morovic's paradox. Those of us who read Engels on the part played by Labour from transition to ape to man knew that already. That thought does not dominate the world by itself. Thought comes out of human activity. You're on uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we're listening to a speech that uh, Humphrey McQueen gave at the new international bookshop uh, on May the 8th. And uh, let's continue with the rest of what Humphrey had to say. The other one, the story we all hear, is about, you know, people on the left run off in a state of panic about Uber is doing this and Uber is doing that. What I was surprised to discover was that last year Uber lost $4.9 million, $9 billion. And when the new man came in to take charge of this mess, he was on the verge of closing down the driverless car and the vertical lift-off aircraft. Um, and he's been talked out of the driverless car one at the moment because he'd been told by the engineers that that's actually the way of the future and they've got to stay in there no matter what it's costing them. Now, again, this question of what is Uber up to? And people think, oh, they're underpaying the workers, they're, you know, all true. But they're doing something else. They're doing what Coca-Cola did in the 1890s. Where do they get the capital from? The major capital is in the vehicles. Who supplies the vehicles? The drivers. Now, in America, and this is a bit different here for obvious reasons, the people who need this kind of work can't afford cars that are no more than three years old. So what do you do? They make you a loan to buy a new car. Now, if they move to driverless cars, the first generation are going to be monstrously expensive and not very efficient. So that anyone who, who needs that extra $7 you know, an hour or whatever they're getting to do this is going to have to take out another loan for an enormous sum of money. And what are we looking at again? The subprime crisis of 2006, 2008. That's what that can only lead to. But the main point is that the capital is being supplied by the drivers, not by the corporation. And as long as they can do that, they're quite happy to mechanise. But there's no way out of the, you know, it's it's not yet a public company. They're supposedly, their market valuation, one of those mystical numbers, is $50 billion. Um, If they went onto the market and sold it, Losing five billion a year, I don't know how much of the fifty million they'd actually raise, but given the state of the world, they may raise a hundred billion you know dollars. You know, the more you lose, the more people seem to want to give you money these, in these high tech companies. So, so that may well happen to them. But if they did that, what would they then do with the fifty with the fifty billion? Could they then pay for this development of the machinery, or would they pay for the cars? And if they did, they'd be running into all of the maintenance costs that they don't have at the moment, because it's not just the car that the worker supplies, he has to service it and do all those things as well. Um, Very high service costs on a new generation of technology. So they're not going to want to do that. 
The smartest thing they could do would be to cash out and give it to BlackRock, this investment trust. And BlackRock could then invest it in other people for them. And they might only get 5 or 6%, but they wouldn't have to worry about any of these problems that capitalists have to worry about. BlackRock manages, and this has got more noughts on than we can think of, $17 trillion worth of investment. About 7% of all the capital on the market everywhere in the world. The other area which some of you will be directly concerned about in your employment and ratio area is the supply of services. And Uber, uh, in a way, is a, you know, an example of, a, of, of supplying some kind of a service. Now, the American economist William Beaumont got onto this in the 1950s by being asked to do some work on the nature of, of artistic production and then on the functioning of university libraries. One of his later books sums up the discoveries that he made. And it's titled is, Why do computers get cheaper and healthcare does not? One of the reasons, of course, why healthcare doesn't get cheaper is because the corporates have got control of it and we don't get proper preventative medicine in the first place. But the actual provision of, of the medical care is a human service. And as in a library, stacking books can probably be done by a robot. As Walter knows, as a reference librarian, a reference inquiry, however, might be dealt with in two minutes or two days. How do you standardise that? You can't. So what do they try and do? Well, they try and eliminate reference librarians. That's the first thing. That's the, you, know, you don't have them anymore. Everyone becomes their own reference librarian. Um, the other thing they try and do is to shift the time cost onto the user. Now, in services, we know this only too well. You see it at the checkouts in supermarkets. You see it in so many places, at ATMs, uh, everywhere. Where there's a service, they've shifted the time cost onto us. Because they don't pay for that. I mean, if they had the same number of tellers or a checkout or any of these things, there'd be an enormous burden on their, on their wage bill. So they've shifted that right across to us in every area. The other thing they've tried to do, of course, is to force down in the areas where they sell these provision of services off to the corporates and there is some kind of regulation oversight to this, like in aged care and things, they drive down the quality of the standards. They move to self-regulation so that it's possible for the corporates to provide the service without having to meet the old standards and time demands and other expenses that would previously have been involved in that. The one thing we haven't mentioned so far which is crucial to the class struggle is the state. Because what does the state do in a capitalist society? The state organises capital and disorganises labour. You say that three times every day when you get up. <laughs> Remind yourself. 
you know, that the state is not our friend. It's not what it's here for. Uh, and one of the ways in which it disorganises labour, of course, is to organise it into the ALP, into parliamentary parties, into certain kinds of trade unions, through the arbitration system. It organises it, puts it under control as well. It doesn't just disperse it and break it up in the way in which it's trying to do with the Building and Destruction Commission. In the last hundred years, the other thing it's had to do, of course, is to delaborize the battlefront for its own security. The only reason there was a revolution in 1917 was that the Tsar had to arm the people. If he hadn't armed all the peasants, they wouldn't have had guns to overthrow him. And the same was true after the First World War. Everywhere, where you had trained the bulk of the population to use a gun, this was a threat to you. When Lloyd George wanted to send British troops in to, to fight the Red Army, the action committees that had sprung up right across England to stop this, one of the reasons that the general said to him, and they said this to Churchill, perhaps more significantly in 1945, when he wanted to get 100,000 Wehrmacht to join up with the British Army to invade the Soviet Union in July 1945, his general said to him, Prime Minister, if you do that, there will be a revolution in England. The British soldier will not fight against the Red Army. And we saw it again in Vietnam, when the, the black troops came home and they had guns. Uh, so what we've seen right across is an increasing pressure to delaborise the battlefront. And we see that today with robots and drones. And, you know, so that's one of the things they've done. The other thing they've done, of course, is to increase, as we know only too well, all of the surveillance controls over us. And I have to say, to remind you again, everyone with a mobile phone is a field agent for the National Security Agency. They know where you are, they know what you're doing, they know who you're meeting, they know what you're saying and what you're planning to do. The days in which they needed people on the left in the pay of ASIO are long gone. They don't need to do that anymore at all. The left does it for them. What we face is this increased power of the state using all these new technologies. And there, there will be no expense spared. There's not a question there of will we use, go back to using you know, human intelligence when they've got all of these resources to be able to control and to spy on us in, in every other conceivable way. To wind up, to go back to the questions that were on the agenda paper for this evening when we started. What would Mark say and what can we do? Well, one of the things that Marx would say is read chapters 12 to 15 of volume one. <laughs> These are the chapters on the length of the working day, the intensity of the working day, cooperation. So the workplace division of labor, large scale machinery and the active and reserve armies. These are the things which we've got to get our heads around in thinking about what the future of labour time is in a capitalist society. They're the chapters that Marx told his friends to start reading Capital with. Don't start with chapter one, he said. Start with chapter 12 on the working day. Much easier to, to, uh, to proceed with because they relate to our everyday experiences. We have to realise again out of this that what we face 
is the need for class struggle. It's the class interest, not the machine that is the enemy. To make any of this effective, of course, we have to rebuild the labour movement. And my suggestion here is that what we need to think of is linking it to the everyday needs of working people everywhere. And I sum this up by talking about what I would call the seven pillars of socialism. It's an independent agenda, certainly independent of the ALP, but it's one that we can only develop by getting, by being able to listen to what the needs, the hourly needs of working people actually are and not go to them with an agenda and land it on them. But the seven pillars, I think, are pretty incontestable. They're housing, somewhere to live, the transport in all its forms, work or being out of work, health, education, and making the environment, as the sixth pillar, part of those other five and not something remote from people's lives. Somewhere off in Tasmania or the Barrier Reef. People are concerned about that, but the environment exists in people's daily lives. And, we, and I think we weaken our position by making it appear that the environment is something to do with the wilderness mm. rather than to do with what we have to cope with every hour of every day. Um, and the seventh one is to battle for the right to be able to struggle around the other six. To hold on to all the abilities to, to struggle that the working class has won over the last 200 years. There are parts in the world, you see them every night on television, whereas the rally tomorrow would be met with gunfire. That's not the case in Australia. Why? Because for 200 years, from the convicts onwards, people fought and struggled against it. We don't have rights to do this. We won those rights out of struggle. And if we don't exercise them, then we don't have them anymore. The rights only exist when they're being put really into practice. So they're the basic things that we can do. One final thing is, why do we want to do this? Well, yes, people need jobs in order to eat, put food on the table, all of those things. But in the last 30 years, because of the terrible conditions at work or the joblessness, the left, I fear, has lost track of something else. That work should be good for us. It should make us more human. It should make us more social. It shouldn't be alienating and estranging. We have to reclaim that. As Marx said, you know, I mean, it is really... I mean, the, the terrible phrase over the gates of the concentration camps of mm. Arbeit Mark Frey, these were taken from the social reform movement in Germany in the late 19th century. The people who are saying that People should not be subjected to the factory, that work should make you free. It was like the German equivalent of the William Morris view of the world. 
And that got totally, you know, contorted under the Nazis. But it is something that we should cling to, the notion that work is what has made us human as a species, it's what makes us operative as a class, and it is what makes us human as individuals. Not paid work, but every kind of human activity. Being in love, raising children, putting IKEA chairs together, <laughs> all of these things are part of that experience, the widespread experience of human labour in every, every conceivable form, what Marx calls sensuous human activity. We have to reclaim that, and as Marx says, that the beginning of that world is control over the length of the working day. If you were working 16 hours a day, six days a week, the chances of you having any of that just weren't there. Now we have a double problem. The length of the working day plus the compression of the work within it, the intensification of the work within those times. So that even if you're only working eight hours a day, the intensity of it is so much greater that you don't have that capacity for the free play. So, yes, we still want eight hours work, eight hours sleep and eight hours play as an immediate demand, but the, the real demand we have as socialists is for 24 hours of play. Thanks. <laughs>